Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Uh, good evening and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Um, it very often the case, it strikes me, it struck me on my way here today that... If you've been doing music broadcasting on the BBC nationally for a long period of time, something tends to happen to you. You tend to turn into a bit of a... Wanker? A joke. (laughs) A caricature. You know, before you know where you are, presumably John Colshaw can do a really good, you know, impression of you. And people then say, they listen to a record and they go, that's the kind of thing that so-and-so would play. You know, you get a kind of very cartoon image. And I think it's fair to say that's not the case with our our guest on Word in Your Ear uh, this evening, who's uh, who's broadcast with distinction on Radio 1, Six Music, Radio 2, probably various other places as well. Uh, but has also built up a kind of uh, a, a thriving second string in, in other activities, podcasting, uh, first of all writing books for young adults and children, and now writing books for adults, which, you know, by the standards of BBC Radio Disc Jockeys, makes him a complete renaissance man. Yeah. I think that's better. to Some say. kind of genius. Yes. And here to talk about his career and also his, uh, his, his first grown-up novel, Mad Blood Stirring, please welcome Simon Mayo. Thank you very much. I have to say this is... I consider this to be a, a career highlight... Uh, with the, I'm thrilled. Too kind. No, look, I, st- yeah. I still lament the fact the Word magazine does not come through my door <laughs> every month. Oh. And so I, I listen to the CDs every month. I listen to the podcast all the time. So this is like still owning a little bit of what I lament the passing of. So. Oh, very kind of you. Well, I, I have to say that I, I, I approach this gig with slight apprehension because I'm aware of the fact and you, you are also Mark having been interviewed by Simon on more than one occasion this is the best prepared man in broadcasting 
You know, he's got, he's got his questions completely sorted out. He's read the book from beginning to end. You know, he's not, he's not winging it at all, are you, Simon? Is that fair? Have you always been like that? Uh, that only... That's, that, when I went to Five Live, I felt as though I was ill-equipped to be there. And so... And I could tell the seething rows of journalists also felt that I was <laughs> ill-equipped to be there. Although Nicky Campbell had been very nice and he'd, said, you know, he'd kind of like blazed the trail and uh, he'd proved that it was possible to go from Radio 1 to 5 Live. And so as a consequence, I over-prepare all the time because I, w- I was determined not to be the idiot. Right. Um, and I always think in most interviews you're one question away from being an idiot so, and being exposed as such. And I didn't want to let the side down. So I, I made a point when I went to 5 of just... You know, they said, OK, this bit is going to be like a 15-minute interview with this person who's written uh, a book about cycling. But if the next guest falls through, that could well end up being a 40-minute yes, interview. Yes, absolutely. And so you're thinking, OK, I need, to, I need to be able to make it five minutes or an hour. And so, consequently, I went slightly over the board. So it's that, that as, as an approach that's kind of stayed with me, really. So you, you mentioned Nicky Campbell. Can, you, did, you followed in those footsteps. So Nicky Campbell didn't regard himself, never regarded himself as a DJ. Is that fair to say? Um, I think we're all broadcasters, David. Oh, is that what it is nowadays, is it? I think so. Well, Nicky, you know, he has... Uh, he, he's a Renaissance man. You know, he does loads of stuff. And uh, I don't think he, he wanted to be, you know, constrained by what Radio 1 had to offer. So he, you know, he, he was happy to move to five. And so when I, when I was offered the chance, I, you know, I went out for lunch with him. And he explained who got on with who, how the newsroom hated the sports room, yes. you know, who traditional BBC yeah, yeah. warmth, all that kind of stuff. Which you know, which was which was very helpful. It was still terrifying, but you know. who was fighting who over which month in the annual calendar they would appear? Yes, that was a, the old Radio <laughs> One calendar used yeah. to be a great. Yeah. If you appeared in the autumn months, you knew your contract was safe for another. Yeah, if, at least you, were, nine months. if you if, if you were, were January's pin-up, absolutely packing. You were cool. exactly. yeah. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> now, the, if you've listened to the podcast uh, in the past, you'll know that one of the questions we, we traditionally ask is, um, is, can you remember what music-playing machinery was available in your house yeah. when you were a child? Yes, very much so. I can remember... Here's uh, a picture of you as a child, actually. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. This is more true of the one on the left than the one on the right. <laughs> my, my parents had a... Um, uh, I think it was... I can't remember the name of the... It was a, a record player with a, with a lid, which you lifted up. You can now buy them in cool boutiques. For yeah, a, right. And it had, you know, spindle, 45, 78, 33, 16. 16. 16, yeah. Has anyone ever... No. S- yes. You've got a six, have you seen a 16? Yes, 16 used to be used for language records. Oh, okay. If you wanted to teach yourself French, it generally went around at 16 RPM. Is that right? Well, I never saw any of that. Anyway, so it had the spindle and the arm that went across so that you could load up the singles, uh, and then three would drop down at the same time, and it were all scared and everything. Yeah. Break but, the they, but they had that, uh, and that's what my earliest memories are. In fact, my sister and I, we, uh, using that record player and my dad's reel-to-reel tape recorder i did a tape when i was and i at the age of like that bit older pretended to be the breakfast show dj on radio one and uh my sister did the jingles on a xylophone (laughs) Uh, and i changed my name to simon stevens because i thought mayo was an idiot you know idiotic name (laughs) 
yeah. And I had I wrote you know a running order on the on on the forty five label, so I knew what order to play things in. I would read out whole chapters from my shoot annual. Uh, it was as a link. It was probably a little bit long and great <laughs> and, uh, and boring. So anyway, so yes, it was it was one of those record players with a lid and a spindle. Uh, Were your parents keen on music? N- um, of the kind of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Val Dunican Flanders and Swan Flanders and Swan absolutely yeah. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only person on the Piccadilly line listening to Flanders and Swan no, yeah, yeah, no, I, no. if I'm there I'm probably yeah. I, I mean actually just tying that into the word CDs that used to come every month have I mentioned how annoyed I am that yeah. they don't that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> I think the fact that my parents loved Gilbert and Sullivan and Flanders and Swan I think there's a direct link from that to Half Man Half Biscuit Yep. And yeah, and one of the reasons why I know musical. all the words to "For What Is Chatteris" is because I learnt all the words to the Patter song, <clears throat> the Patter song, which is the nightmare song from Iolanthe by Gilbert and Sullivan. And I and I and I, and I, I think that's why I still love those Patter songs is because of that the records that my parents played. Your parents were teachers. Yeah, my dad was a head teacher, and uh, my mum. Well, my mum had been a studio manager at the BBC. Uh, and then she left to have kids, and, and then my sister's a head teacher, so I would have inevitably have been a teacher if I hadn't found a proper job. Right. And your mum was in radio, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. So and so she, presumably encouraged you to... Because you worked in a, well, she, think, a she, hospital she, radio? Yeah, I mean, she used to talk about um, working for the BBC, and uh, this is at the end, this is at the beginning... Uh, so when she was starting, which is like 56... Uh, most of the programmes were on disc, so they would be on a 78-disc. So if you had a 20-minute talk by Billy Graham, say, um, you would come in with a stack of 78s, and the last 30 seconds of each disc would be the same as the first 30 seconds on the next disc, and then you'd get them going together and then cross-fade. Really? Mix it. Friction, yeah. yeah. That's right. So she was doing that on the deck. Wiki, wiki. And then then tape came in anyway. But she used to talk about the BBC in such terms, and I used to think, OK, well, I, fancy, I fancy doing that. And so I thought I was going to be a studio manager, and then I failed the hearing test, so I had to think of something else to do. You failed the hearing test? Yeah. So this was... So uh, headphones, personal headphones, were causing a lot of damage in young people's ears. Oh, right. And so they started doing this hearing test, and... And it, I had a faulty frequency, probably still have, in my left ear. And it meant they said I couldn't balance the BBC Symphony Orchestra, something very few studio managers ever have to do. Yeah, yeah. But, it, lost, it, you know, it cost, me, it cost me the job. So I had to rethink, and I went in by a local radio instead. So what were your first kind of musical uh, enthusiasms? Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the first stuff I remember was when my elder cousin came to stay, we, she wanted to watch Top of the Pops. And so the, this is about 67, I think, and I, it might be that this isn't the same, but in my head it's all blurred into one, which is Procol Harum doing White Shade of Pale right. and Engelbert Humperdinck doing The Last Waltz. I don't know, that's about the same time, but in my yeah, head it, right. they're on yeah, the yeah. same show. And also through my elder cousin, she, she had bought this, uh, obviously a couple of years later. Anyway, we went to stay with them, and she had a copy of this newfangled Bridge Over Troubled Water uh, album which she put on and I, I remember at the time thinking this is absolutely wonderful and that Christmas when I had my record token uh, I went to WH Smith in the Bullring in Birmingham and that was the first album that I got so I th- 
And, and I love a Paul Simon is the thing that has stayed with me. In fact, I think we exchanged Twitter messages about uh, some album that he, he did a while. But anyway, I, I, I still... I would probably have listened to Paul Simon more than any other artist ever, I think, probably through my life. Have you interviewed him? Yes. Um, How do you find him? Well... <laughs> Was he slightly bitter? <laughs> <laughs> for, a, for a very successful man, he's very bitter. Um, I, I've interviewed him a couple of times. One was on the phone for the Radio Times, um, and I, I headed him off at the pass on the bitterness because <laughs> my brother, who's a producer and writer, had found uh, an old reel-to-reel tape of uh, songs that Paul Simon had sung for the BBC in what was, I imagine, the equivalent of Thought for the Day. Oh, yeah, the yeah, quarter to yeah. ten or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah so... Five to ten. So, and, and Paul Simon had lost... That's all right, five to ten. And, and, and he, he didn't have a copy, so he was well. so excited that I'd found these recordings that he wasn't, for, that, for the course of that interview, he wasn't upset. But the first time was uh, when Rhythm of the Saints came out. And I think I was doing breakfast at the time, and he came in, and I produced from my bag the aforementioned Bridge Over Troubled Water, £2.17 from the Bullring Birmingham. And apparently he doesn't sign them. If you, if you give him a copy of Bridge Over Troubled he doesn't sign it. But because we were live on air, he, he, didn't, feel he, could, he didn't feel he could <laughs> say no. So I have a very rare signed uh, copy. Of... Well, he doesn't sign it because art, art's not there. Oh, I, really to sign. That's I, extraordinary. Don't, I don't know. But anyway, so, yeah, so I was you know, fortunate enough to, uh, to meet him. And I, and, I, and I think the last record that he did is one of the most interesting things. I yeah. think Wristband... Is a fantastic song, you know, and up there with some of his, some of his. Yeah. Best. Can you think of any records that you you kind of broke on the radio? Any hits that you made? None that I'd be proud of. Go on. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, even the ones you're not we, proud of. We want to hear. <laughs> I suspect Cotton Eye Joe was one of them, but I wasn't going to mention late, that. That's later. It's later, yeah. Yeah. No, I was um, always looking on the bright side of life. Uh, no was, shame there. No, no shame there. Fantastic record. Um, Donald, where's your trousers? That was that was you, was that it? Was me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was there was one other. Uh, kinky, kinky boots. Kinky that's right. Boots. Kinky boots. Oh yeah. Kinky boots. But that, the power of breakfast at the time was if you played it a lot, it was a hit. It yeah, just it just was because you know we were talking. You know we were disappointed if we went below ten million uh, in in the in the audience <laughs> figures. Although having said that, it was always quite annoying. When I, so when I joined Radio 1 in 86, Tony Blackburn would always say, I get on very well with because we're you know, working in the same building. He was going around saying, when I was doing the show, we had 26 million people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, you did, because there was no alternative. There was no other radio station. Nothing else around. to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so if you have 10 million people uh, listening, you play stuff a lot. Uh, and it becomes a hit. But, you know, we're in the period now of Stock Aitken and Waterman and all that, so it's all a bit of a blur, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going yeah. back to your local radio, you, know, you started BBC Radio Nottingham, mm-hmm. is that right? Do, do you, you know, when you watch Alan Partridge doing, you know, Up With The Partridge and, you know, coming up after the next record, Norfolk's Youngest Butcher, do, do you yeah. think that takes me back? No, absolutely. <clears throat> Although his, yes, abs- it does. 
Because you have to do... Well, I was a station assistant at Radio Nottingham, which meant you basically did everything. So you would choose records for other people's programmes, you'd drive the radio car, you'd read the news, you know, you'd do <laughs> all kinds of... Radio. Yeah. And, uh, and there, was a, there was a famous incident with uh, another station assistant at another BBC local station who drove the radio car, which, has, uh, as you know, is a, like an estate vehicle with a massive great aerial and now you can't drive with the aerial up but at the time you could and he drove it into a pylon and <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't end well but one of the one of the things that you had to do was to close down uh, the network and it shut down like half six or you know seven o'clock in the evening but the last thing you had to do was to read the fat stock prices from the markets oh yeah so you, had, you know the price of beef and the price of sheep you know uh, all this kind of stuff and then when you'd done that you had to opt into radio two i imagine uh, and uh, there was another station assistant there, a type of freelance called Leroy, who did the reggae show. And uh, he always used to do the fat stock prices with a reggae backing track. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Which revolutionised the whole concept. But it was, you know, it made it a far more enjoyable listen than the way everyone else did it, which is just to read it out cold. But yes, local radio is full of full of those kind of And you invented moments. a format, didn't you, on the, which got you onto Radio 1? I can't uh, remember what it was. The, some programme that you developed. Yeah, I th- well, I thought that, you know, I'd wanted to... Uh, my God. <laughs> Simon's just seen a picture of him joining Radio 1. That's not, right. Not long afterwards. Because when you listen to the podcast, you hear people reacting to yeah, the photos. Was, no What's idea. the photo? I want to know what the photo <laughs> yeah, is. I'm doing the same thing. So the, and the photo must be the Matthew Bannister changes, because there aren't many of us left. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was the question? Uh, the, well, yeah, how did you... The format that... Yeah, that oh, yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah, the format. So I'm, I thought that the quizzes on Radio 1 were a bit rubbish, and so I invented a, uh, a quiz called Globe Phone, and I got a friend of mine to... We basically recorded in a whole pilot, 30 minutes, foreign phone calls. Basically, you had to work out where the person was speaking from anywhere around the world. Uh, so we recorded the whole thing. I made a cassette of it, sent it to Johnny Beerling, who's the controller of Radio 1, and... For some reason, he, he, he got to his desk and he, he listened to it. And in fact, in one of those kind of magic moments, he's, uh, he, my, so the phone goes uh, at Radio Nottingham and the receptionist says it's the control of Radio 1 for you. And you're thinking, it's unlikely, but yeah. you, know, you, you answer it. And he said, it's Johnny Beerling. Uh, he said, you're a good broadcaster. Why haven't I heard of you? And I said, well, I have sent you about six tapes, but, you know, so maybe they didn't get through. But he, he, he'd listened to the, the quiz and he'd missed his tube stop. So he said, if Good it's... Fun. Yeah. So he yeah. said, so therefore, why don't you come down and have a chat? One of those things where you come down and you do have a chat and then you get offered stuff. Uh, and he offered me two weeks doing Gary Davis. For younger listeners, this is a big deal. Because on the Tuesday lunchtime, you get the top 40. He had to announce the top 40. And uh, as a kid, I used to take the radio into school to listen to the chart being unveiled on Tuesday lunchtime. And here I was doing that whole thing. So that's the most terrified I've ever been. I think listening to the news beat, 12.30 to 12.45, waiting to do this from nowhere. I mean, I'd done nothing on Radio 1 at all, and then suddenly doing two weeks uh, of Ooh, Gary Davis. Uh, Ooh, Gary, that's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, and, so, and so that's what I was doing. And I, I still have a recording of my first link, which I didn't mess up, so that's... That was quite a relief. But, um, yeah, so it came from... It all spun out of that cassette of the, of the quiz show that I, I'd invented. Do you feel nostalgic about those local radio days where you could drive the radio car and... Uh, not do really. Everything? Not at all? No. no. 
No, I don't think so. I mean, it was a great, you know, I, I believe in, you know, local radio still has a fantastic future. And in, in some areas, it's the, they're the only, the BBC stations particularly, if you're 60, 65, 70, it's the only station that's interested in your existence. You know, every other music radio station is aiming for people listening who are 30, 35, 40. Everything is there. And if you're 60, 65, 70, we don't care, really. Yeah. So, so BBC local radio still serves quite a valuable purpose i think in that respect so how did you find it coming to radio one and joining this kind of weird boarding school of you know it was very odd people it was i think it was slightly less odd by the time i joined than it than it had been but there certainly was a sense of walking with dinosaurs it was and you know the clashing triceratops with the uh, tyrannosaur Uh, i'm not sure who's going to play who but there was very much a sense so when i joined mike smith was just started doing breakfast then it was simon bates then it was gary then it was steve wright and then dlt dlt was probably at the weekend i think anyway so but it was very much uh you know the music industry was unbelievably different there were pluggers everywhere walking the building handing you free everything handing you clothes Champagne. Oh, there was a. Have you got any there was a ZZ Top record called TV Dinners. Didn't they hire the, the pluggers hire a crane <laughs> to appear outside the window of the fifth floor office <laughs> and knock on it, offer them a you know that's, fried chicken in a tray. That sounds like the days of excess before I got there because it was yeah. even then it was getting slightly more yeah. frugal. But but DJs like Mike Reed and so would say, oh, in in the old days, you know, we used to do this, that, and the other. But in the but you know when you come from local radio, this was. An amazing yeah. world. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was genuinely eye-popping. In fact, my first day at Radio 1, this day when I was doing Gary Davis for the first time, um, A&M Records, the plugger from A&M Records, said, this is a gift for you, and would you like to come and see Supertramp tonight at the Royal Albert Hall? So I went, OK, cool, yeah, thank you very much. So I got this, and, and it was a, a record bag, so it would hold like a, either a 12-inch single or an album, and, and in there, down at the bottom, was a, was a, a dope kit, basically, uh, so I could roll my own uh, marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> and I thought, OK, this is, this is a test, isn't it, really? This is my first day. How I, how I respond to this, maybe it's been planted. Maybe this happens to everybody on their first day. Yeah. Maybe it's the drugs test that you, know, that you get given. Do you take part? Do you hand it over? You know, what do you do? So I went up to Doreen Davis's office, who was the number two uh, uh, in the building, famous uh, BBC institution, and I said, uh, Doreen, I've just been given some marijuana by A&M Records. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not. Did she you said, want to buy some? <laughs> <laughs> she, well, she, you know, so she said, I think I'll take that. So, by which I don't mean anything disrespectful. No, I mean, no, just, right, right, exactly. She said, you've, you've, done the right, you know, you've done the right thing. So then I, I still went to see Supertramp at the Royal Albert Hall, and there was definitely a haze, uh, <laughs> but it, it, none of it came from me. Did right. you get given loads of satin tour jackets in those days? Um, I, you, yes, you did. You got uh, donkey what, jackets, you got leather jackets. Well, my favourite one was there was, a ra- there was a Radio 1 baseball jacket, which I'm amazed they found the budget for. But my favourite one was actually a Terminator leather jacket. I, so whoever Actual was mar- leather. Yeah, it was actually proper leather. I don't, so whoever was marketing the soundtrack, probably for Terminator 2, uh, had you know leather jacket stamped with T two uh, at the back, uh, which was pretty you know worth some money. Yeah, that's right. But it's funny, like you know, we're all being paid very well. But the thought of something for free, this was like even more amazing. You know, yeah. we got yeah. very excited by free stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, did, did you 
look around Radio 1 and think, where do I fit in here? What's my, what's my niche? Well, the fir- one of the first things... So I joined... Nicky Campbell, Mark Gideon and I all arrived about the same time. And we were clearly... It's almost like a generational difference between us and the guys who were there beforehand. And one of the first things that I had to do, Radio 1, they did weeks out in, in different cities around the country. And there was a week out in Aberdeen. And all of the output from breakfast through to whatever was all coming from Aberdeen. So Adrian Just and I, all we had to do, I had six hours and then he had another six hours. You sit in the studio in case something goes wrong. And you're praying for the line to go down. So right, here's my moment, you know, and you, and you get to, to do a link. Anyway, you know, the lines never went down. But I sat and listened to this stuff and thinking, this is really... Because it was all haggis, tartan, (laughs) sporans. Everything (laughs) felt like it was from 1971. Uh, And even though I was only a few years younger than all these other guys, it just felt really, really, really old-fashioned, you know. And and then you start to think, well, how am I going to fit into this. I was 28. I wasn't particularly young, but I, it was clearly it was uh, an institute. It was one of those, even though it was 1986, it felt like it was 10 years previous. Right, right, really. right. So who were your allies apart from Nicky Campbell? Um, <clears throat> allies. That's interesting. Um, the f- uh, I don't know. I mean, most, most presenters operate as, I think each show tends to operate as an island. You know, you see the people who are there before and the people who are after you. When I was doing the two weeks on Gary, um, Steve Wright came in and said, hello, uh, Simon Bates... I don't think Simon said anything to me at all for a, <laughs> for a, for a while. Um, so, and, the, and the first slot I was given, which was mine, which was, was a Saturday night show... And I did 7.30 to 9.30, and Dixie Peach did a show 9.30 till midnight, I think. And uh, he was, Dixie was a really nice, really nice guy. He didn't, he didn't last long, but he said, Miami Vice was a big show at the time, he said, we're the Crockett and Tubbs of Radio 1. <laughs> so, so I wasn't sure whether that was a good thing or not, and no. I couldn't, couldn't work out which one I was either. I couldn't remember <laughs> which one. But, but Dixie was very nice. Peter Powell was very friendly. So, you know, when you, when you found presenters on their own, they would be, they would be warm. Um, and when I was... I did an evening session for, for nine months. I replaced... Again, it was a sign of the times. I replaced Janice Long, who had been doing the evening session, who lost the job because she was a, uh, a pregnant single woman. So that's why she lost the job. So... Um, Obviously, I should have turned it down, but I didn't. So I, uh, so I did that for nine months. And so then I got to rub alongside John Peel uh, quite a lot. And John obviously kept himself to himself very often. But occasionally, he'd put his head around the door and say, that's a rocking good track, that is. You know? And you're thinking, you know, you sort of grow about another uh, six inches. So, you know, um, I've found most of the presenters that I was working alongside to be to be friendly and, uh, and supportive. Did you find Peel very worried that, uh, all the time that he was going to be replaced? He seemed to be, at the times I bet him, he was very uncomfortable about his position in the, oh, really? in the galaxy. You know, he just kind of thought all new people might be there, might be the new John Peel, you know. Well, uh, I treated his office, which he shared with John Walters, which was like opposite and along from the office that I shared with about four other people, and it was almost like a, a holy temple. 
So I would never dream of having that come. And he wouldn't dream of saying that to me uh, either. But it was because he had this legendary status, as indeed did John Walters, you know. Yeah. And so you would find yourselves hanging around just to listen what the, to what they were listening to yeah. or the conversations that they were having. This all feels like, I have to say, this feels like a lost world. I haven't thought about John Walters for a long time. But, you know, they were, they were fantastic. And he was a great book broadcaster in his own right. You don't find DJs as a breed are crazy because they Mm. sit in a room and they talk to nobody (laughs) and then they're paranoid that it's all going to get taken away from them at a moment's notice. There's kind of nothing they can do about it. That's because it can. It can, can't it? Yes, I think so. I I think there is a... I think there is a condition which is like DJ-itis and the first, indica- the first symptom is that you start referring to yourself in the third person, yeah. Yeah. Which, has ha- which has happened to a number of my colleagues. I don't know, I, this is, I don't, I don't know what I can say or what I can't say because if this was just a pub and not a podcast, then obviously I'd feel more at liberty to exchange those. Simon's available for private consultations yeah. afterwards in the, yeah. the bar afterwards. <laughs> yeah. No, but okay, well, let's make it interesting. Um, I th- one of the, I see Steve Wright a lot, and I like Steve very much, and we get on very well. And he's al- he's always been very very supportive. But I remember at eighty six, eighty seven, he would walk in and say, "Wright is here," <laughs> and I remember thinking, what, "What you mean? I'm here? I mean, is that what?" Um, but it was an inch. But you, you're right, David, because it was that. On the one hand, these people had audiences of. Ten million plus. Uh, Simon Simon Bates' show was uh, just an unstoppable juggernaut, and so that that's going to affect the way that we're, the way you think. Equally, they know exactly as you say that they could be out tomorrow. Yeah, and some of them were. So, but what audience you know, as you witnessed this photograph that we're looking at, there's a number of there's a number of spaces where uh, there are some established broadcasters who are no longer there. Because yeah, probably they, a lot of people would have difficulty recognising an awful lot of the people on that picture. Do you think? Who probably yeah. thought at the time the picture was taken that they were going to be guaranteed of you know, national fame for the rest of their career. Yeah. And the guy in the dungarees is Mark Tonderai, who was not a Radio 1 for very long and ended up as a film producer. Uh, me and Mark Goody and Steve Wright and John. I mean, I don't know why there are so few of us there, but and there's Joe Wiley and Steve Lamack. So anyway, so there are, we're a happy band, I think. We probably hadn't met for quite a while. Right. What right. was the audience when you did the breakfast show? Because you did it for what, I four, did it five from years? Uh, 88 yeah. to 93. Yeah. Um, it's about. That, that's an Andrew Collins laughter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just, oh my <laughs> God. We're looking at a picture of you doing what I assume is the Radio 1 yeah, we, road show. Well, you we, know, we fact, picked out a number of yeah. humiliating images here. Yes, you have. Yeah. There are you in shorts doing some Radio 1 road That's show. road show. There are you, you, you posing with uh, Paul Gascoigne, yeah. uh, who's cutting up a pair of shorts. For some reason. And you picture with uh, Chris Evans. But anyway, yes. uh, Mark was talking about the breakfast show. So you did that from late... Did that days? for about five, five and a half years. I, don't, I mean, the audience is it's about... It is about nine, ten... Million. I benefited from the fact that all the, the we had a big FM switch on. So Radio One had been on medium wave only for a long time. Then the FM switch on happened all the time. I was on breakfast, so that was very. But doesn't that affect you? The idea that you open up the fader and you're talking to ten million people is just an astounding. Mean, most of us haven't had that experience. No. Does that affect the way you got Gen- it? Genuinely, genuinely doesn't. I mean, I did student radio at Warwick and I did hospital radio. Yeah. And you kind of. I know this is now going to border into cliche, but you you kind of do do the same. 
show, uh, whoever you, whether you're broadcasting to five people or whether you are doing five million. I think the only difference that it, it does make is one of the first things that I, they sent me on was to do visit... For, for a Christmas show, it was that they used to do a fairly standard thing of sending presenters to hospitals around the country and then they'd talk to kids and then play that out on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. And so I went to, I was, went to Northern Ireland and I went to Glasgow and I'd never been to any of these places before. And you listen to radio, and when you listen to Radio 1 driving uh, all over the UK, if you're on the Shankill Road and you're listening to Radio 1, it does genuinely, even though you know that that's true, even though that you know that Radio 1 is broadcasting to everywhere, until you s- witness it and experience it, driving through the Lake District or, you know, on Orkney or where, wherever it is, you're thinking, okay, this is really powerful. And it does kind of balance yeah. the inevitable Southern and London bias, which you instinctively uh, end, up, end up having. So, uh, I th- yeah, so it, it was, I always thought, because you still, you still hear people on the radio now saying, you know, up in Scotland, and it drives me crazy, you yeah. know. Uh, what's what's up about it? You know, if you're in Scotland, then that's you, it's just it's just where you are. So it was a very useful education. Yeah. So the the old cliche they always tell you is you're not broadcasting millions of people; you're broadcasting to one person. I never quite believe that. Do you do that? And who's the person? I think it's a useful training tool to start with. I, I still think it's you. I still try and avoid referring to the. I still wouldn't say, "Come on, everybody, tell us what you've been doing." Right. So, with but if you say, "Tell us how your day's been," it's the same kind of thing. But I think it's still. I think it's slightly less off-putting. I, I, I think if you were, I don't know. It's just an instinct, really. I think to refer to everybody individually because radio is such a still a personal medium. Podcasts are even more personal. So I guess I still do instinctively think of the audience as one person, even if you know that there are millions of individuals out there. So I think so, yes. Uh, so we've got a picture here of you at some Radio 1 roadshow and some seaside town, probably, um, with, with the shorts and, you know, uh, conducting the, the crowd and about to judge the knobbly knees contest or whatever it is. Uh, you, you, Didn't you, Old Grey Whistle Test do the same kind of Very thing. probably. <laughs> hey, listen, I've done more shameful things than you have. Um, but uh, you kind of gritted your teeth and just got on with that. Or did you enjoy that? I enjoyed so, them. Right. I enjoyed them. It was the closest that you would ever get to being a rock star on tour uh, because you would be going... I, I'm trying to wear... I'm not quite sure where that is. But you would basically go to... You knew that people were on holiday at the seaside, so you take the show to them. And we took... And obviously this is going to cause a ripple of excitement through this illustrious crowd. We took Jason Donovan to Western Superman. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Marriage made in heaven. Well, yeah. I tell you, it, sh- it shut down the town. It was like it sure. was the most exciting thing that had happened in Western Supermare, and it happened because we took the show there, you know, and at the time he was the number one pin-up and the number one pop star. So you get crowds like you've got there. It's like 20,000 people, you yeah. know, so, so you walk on stage and you say, well, welcome to Western Supermare, and you get this wave of noise. Having said that, on Simon Bates's last roadshow tour... The wave of noise on his roadshows was the most incredible sound you've ever heard. It sounded as though he had 100,000 people 
had come to his roadshow. It was really, really impressive. We only found out later that he'd used the Live Aid. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so when he said, well, you know, welcome to Torquay, the, the reaction that you got was, was actually That's Wembley Stadium. Please welcome the Who with you That's guys. Right, yeah. <laughs> Status quo. That is classic. Yeah. We got a picture here of you. It's a, it's a wacky photo call with, uh, with Paul Gascoigne. Can you remember what you were doing there? Well, he must have had Fog on the Tyne out as a single, oh, right. which is why he'd come in. Although he, that's, to be honest, I'm not sure, because when he came in to promote that, he, he had to be dragged out of bed by his plugger, who didn't want, he didn't want to get out of bed at 8 o'clock in the morning. So, but he's too smartly dressed for that. So, cup final, maybe the right, right, right. Spurs-Arsenal semi-final, I don't know. But you embraced all that side of the, the, kind of the daft photo call. And, uh, you know, well, you know. You just think that goes with the job. I think. I think it does. Uh, there is, there is, there are a couple of incidents where I know I dressed up as a BG, ah. and I, I am yet to see any photographs of that, which is a very, good, very good thing. They'll probably I, be available on Twitter this evening. Or why did you? Why did you dress up as a BG? I've got no idea. It was some shabby Radio One event in a in a nightclub, and I think we all had to dress up as pop stars or something and so I was given I was given this I was given this costume and there were, okay, now it all starts coming back so also I remember going to a Radio 1 weekender it's November uh, and it's um, Prestatin right and uh, my slot at the time was 6 till 8 on Sunday morning and it, it was I was, I've, seen, I've had this conversation with the Reverend Richard Coles because he was playing uh, with his band uh, with Jimmy Somerville and the fact they were number one at the time and I said I remember that we, I just thought it was just unbelievably awful and I hated every single minute of it and at six o'clock in the morning um, the place was full of people who hadn't, who hadn't gone to bed so I'm trying to do a sensitive early morning show leading up to I have to say uh, it, this was Remembrance Sunday, oh, so there was a degree of decorum yeah, which yeah. was which was required, which was not coming from the dance floor at Prestatin at six, <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning. Anyway, it turned out that Richard Coles had had an absolute nightmare, pouring Jimmy Somerville out of the plane that they had uh, that they'd arrived in. But don't leave me this way was a num- was number one that weekend. So you know they were a, they were a big they were a big moment. But yes, yeah, you know you, you do have to em- embrace or right. just tolerate. That the, side of that side of awfulness. So, in your time in breakfast, it's traditional. Somebody, whoever does breakfast, there's usually some catastrophe that occurs. You know, Mike Reed deciding to ban Frankie goes to Hollywood. Chris Evans not turning up or yes. whatever. Did you have anything like that? Or were you a good boy? Mike Reed producing an acoustic guitar and playing some of his own yes. compositions. Which <laughs> I remember very fondly. Scarred many of us. Talking about his weekends playing tennis with Cliff Richard, his That's neighbor. right, that's right. Yeah. That was before the UKIP Calypso, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> who could forget? Yeah. So did you have anything like that? Was there, were there any... Uh, I don't think... The only, the only thing, which is not a catastrophe at all, is that uh, Jackie Brambles, who was on the show... With me, she did the early show, and then she came on, and, and she was part of the breakfast crew. Um, is that that? That's quite a tough gig. So she she was on air at five, uh, so she obviously had to get in about half four. Uh, anyway, I could tell that she was pretty tired and getting increasingly tired. And we were half, we were halfway through the show, and she actually fell asleep 
uh, whilst I was talking, which is like... That's, uh, and she fell off her chair uh, in, a, in a dead faint. And um, that's about the most catastrophic thing that happened. I mean, she, you know, she was fine, and, and uh, uh, we carried on. But uh, I think that's the... You know, so I was a good boy, really. Right. I mean, I think the... the so you were a safe pair of hands, weren't you? I was. A, I guess I was. Which, which is no. There's I nothing wrong with that. I well. <laughs> well, I like to think so. I mean, I think that's. Uh, that I'm very happy to be a safe, safe pair of hands. Right. Yeah. Right. But it never means a good thing, does it? If you're a safe pair of hands, it's not actually. It's like getting satisfactory in an Ofsted. It's kind of. <laughs> it's, sort of it's okay. But have you ever? You know, you've you've broadcast live to huge audiences. And, and you can open the fader and you can kind of say what you like, really. You've got to think about your career and all sorts of things. <laughs> but yes. there must be times when you've entertained the idea, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to say so-and-so, something that's just popped into my head and then regretted it. Have you? Never? I don't, I don't think I have. See, really? safe, safe pairs of hands don't think like that. <laughs> that's why, you know... So you know what you're going to say before, you know, as the record's... Uh, pretty yes, pretty much. Um, and but the, in, the you know the instinct there is a you, th- there is a studio instinct. You know you just know that you can't say this stuff. You know that you, you just know that you can't. So we have conversations in our you know as the kids have grown up about swearing, right? So I say, well, it, d- it depends where you are. If you're on your own, if you're with your yeah. mates, then you have that's fine. But if you're in in the room with your mum uh, or your grandma, then, then you don't. So there are different rules depend, depending on where you are. <clears throat> and the radio studio is one of those places that you have to learn and get it absolutely into your blood that you don't swear. Because it's not worth it. It's just not, it's just not worth uh, the hassle. I did an interview when I was on Five with... Um, Huey Morgan was there. Oh, some more tasteful photographs yeah, have come yeah, up yeah. with my radio husband and my radio wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who is it who did? What, what was Huey Lewis's? Uh, what was Huey Morgan's bad? Huey. Oh, fun loving criminal. Fun loving criminals. So they're all in. See, old age syndrome. Been around a long time. Fun loving criminals are being interviewed on Five. Like, why? I have no idea. But Huey would not stop swearing. Really? I mean, he was just absolutely. I couldn't get him to stop. We were very close to. Uh, I could see the producer, you know, getting very antsy, you know, thinking if he says that again, we're going to have to come off or they're going to have to play a tape or we'll go to travel or something. The trouble with speech radio is you haven't got much to yeah, go to. You, you can't. What, yeah. can you, what can you do? You know, <laughs> I did a terrible interview with Steven Seagal, who was just the worst guest ever. And I think I need music radio. You'd go, you'd just play another record. We had nothing to go to, so I had to stretch it out until the travel reporter comes in, you know, five minutes of travel uh, or whatever. Anyway, fun loving criminals, there we are. Huey Morgan, Effin and Jeffin all the way through. And, the, and so his, he had a, an English drummer in the band, and he said, he leant over and he said, Huey, when that red light's on, your mum's in the room. Very good. Well, anyway, well okay, and after that, he got it and he was as good as gold. Now, Huey's got a broadcasting career, so he, yes. obviously, he obviously learned a few things. But it's just, you know, it goes against the, it's just instinctive, really, I think, not to say bad stuff. Because why would you if it means you're going to be out on your ear the next day? No, I wasn't thinking of anything particularly scandalous. I was just thinking, you know, of just a wacky idea or something that, you know, you get the feeling sometimes people do that on the radio. This has just occurred to them. 
and they're uh, saying it for the hell of it because they can. And it finishes up in the papers. Well, it doesn't always. <laughs> it does yeah. Well, in, yeah. In, uh, I guess you can. I guess you can do that sometimes, but uh, producers hate that kind of stuff. You right. know, you're, you're not supposed to. Th- you're not supposed to think. Uh, and an impromptu is, you know, is scary. I mean, I think the presenters who, who would have done that, um, the Kenny Everett's of this world, are rightly considered to be radio geniuses. But when when Steve Wright is doing a uh, a humorous piece, it's been recorded. It's recorded. <laughs> you know, or he's planned it and he's and he's thought it out. And I I do think the best ad libs are the ones that you've prepared earlier. Right. Um, Right. So I would. So, so uh, a lot of it is spontaneous, but most of the spontaneity, I think, comes in an interview. So because you just never know which way an interview is going to go. So the best advice I was ever given about interviewing is do your prep, with yeah. reference to earlier, and listen to what the other person Absolutely. is saying. Absolutely. They're the only two. Th- that's the only two things that you need to know. And then you then have to. If we start freewheeling, then you have. Then you then you go with it. Uh, so you have. To, so that becomes, I think, the most. But it's a surprising moment. It's, very, it's often very difficult to listen to what people are saying to you on the radio because you've got headphones on and probably the producer's talking to you or, or you're thinking about how long you've got to, the, to get to the news or whatever. Sure, and, and Radio 2 interviews tend to be of a different nature than, than a Five Live interview where you genuinely didn't know where it was going. Uh, and also you might be dealing with someone who, would, who was grief-stricken or had just witnessed a catastrophe or... Uh, or whatever. So, uh, but the discipline is the same. I'm a strong believer that, apart from those two things that I said about doing an interview, my other thing, which I passionately believe in, is the art of the short question. Mm -hmm. And and I I break the rule all the time, but there is a, a genuine... Thrill and power in a brief, you hit it in a brief question, and you hit it. The prime minister's questions is exactly the same. If someone stands up and asks the prime minister, whoever it is, a question which basically says, "What did you mean by that?" They've got no time They've to got absolutely no time to think about yeah. what you know what yeah. they're saying. Larry King, when he was on CNN, was the past master of asking the shortest questions, and they were always fantastic. You know, and then there's the other end of the extreme, you know, where you get. Bless him, Jim Nocty, asking a question which might last two and a half minutes, yeah. um, and where the whole one-syllable answer. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that's right. And and and, and again, I uh, you know, and I've done it, so I'm uh, I'm not guilt-free here. But the whole purpose of that kind of question is to show off how much you know about the subject, uh, rather than to genuinely find out what that person is saying. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that's a long, rambly answer. But. So we're looking at a picture of, as you said, your radio husband and your radio wife. Tell us about your radio husband, first of all. Mark Commode. Uh, yeah, Mark Commode. Um, I've been doing film chat with him for a long time, as you can tell from that photograph. Um, we started on Radio 1 when I moved to mid-morning. Matthew Bannister thought I wanted to do some film reviews. Mark was doing film reviews for Mark and Lard uh, on the late-night show, and he put us together... And, and it worked, and we had to do two bands of four minutes each. The first band was films, and the second band was video, uh, video releases. Um, and I think the, that gesture which Mark is doing, which is he's got his thumb and forefinger about two inches apart, he's saying, that's how long we've got to talk about movies, and that's how long we've got to talk about It's very, very short. And then when I left and went to five, I thought I would, wanted to rekindle that because I thought we could do, do that properly. And so we, did a, we started on Fridays, we did like a 40-minute uh, film review section. And then when I 
left again and went to Radio 2, it became, I, th- I said, we can do more with this. You know, don't lose this feature. Let's turn it into a, a one-off Friday uh, programme. So we've been, we've been doing that for 10, 11, 12 years. I don't know, a long time. How do you kind of manage the relationship between the two of you? Or do you, do you have to talk about it or not? Do you know exactly what it's, you're doing? It's instinctive because we have different roles. I'm the host and he's the contributor. He is the critic and I, I am not. I am not a film expert at all. He is. So we, we bring different things um, to the table. So that means that he knows that if there's breaking news or if there's cricket or travel or a guest to interview, that's going to be my gig. And then when the film criticism comes to him. Right. So, so it's very... We have, although I've just noticed Alfred Hitchcock's in that photograph as well. Yeah. So uh, he also has a role. He's a cardboard cutout. And I love um, the way you celebrate success on that program. You really like things to be, you know, you like things that are popular and you like really small art things as well. But you, I th- you, 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 yeah, I think, I think the reason that it works is that if you want to take your film seriously, whether that be a blockbuster movie or whether it be a small art house film. We're on your side. If you have no intention of seeing any of these films at all, you just want to listen to it. I think it works on that basis. Uh, Roger Ebert's uh, autobiography was called, I think it's called About Life. Is that Andrew? Something like that. And I think movies are about life, and I think our film show, when it works, is it's about life. That's what it is. Yes, it's about films, but we have people, we've been doing it a long time, we have people writing to us saying... I used to listen to this programme with my dad and he passed away last week and I just wanted you to know that we both appreciated your show. Or we just had a kid and we intend to take her to, see, take her to the movies as soon as possible. And it became like a births, marriages and deaths section of the programme. Yeah. And it just felt like they wanted to tell us this stuff and we'd been doing it for such a long time. And if you do speech radio in a particular way, you can appeal to a 15-year-old and to a 95-year-old genuinely in a way that music radio can never do. So if the currency is film and all the stuff that comes around it, uh, I think that's, that's why it manages to work. If Mark was here, he'd say it's all about film. But I, I, I genuinely think yeah, that it's, it's, you yeah. take a step back from that, even if you see one film a year, you might yeah. still listen to the, yeah. to the podcast. Yeah, sure. So, and then your radio wife, Joe Wiley, mm-hmm. is this an arranged marriage? <laughs> They're all... <laughs> Go on. They're all arranged marriages. Oh, okay, right. right. The, the one with Mark, I said we were put together by Johnny Beerling. Yeah, of course. So I, you know, it wasn't that I was a fan. Of, I hadn't met Mark uh, until then, and uh, but yes, of course, it was an arranged marriage with uh, with Joe. That uh, radio, you know, management said, "Here, yeah, we we just had a really good idea." Oh, really? <laughs> Tell me more. So <laughs> that's not a discussion, is it? That's no, no, no. That's not a discussion. It's never a discussion. Right, right, right. So it's early days. <laughs> it's early days. There are questions you'll ask me which will have longer answers. Okay. <laughs> it's early days with this, but when you change anything on the radio, you know, you, people don't like it, do they? Uh, no, they absolutely. The, 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 kiss, the kiss of death to my old show was David writing an article in, in the Radio Times saying how great Aura Quest Friday was. The only, the only time it's ever been reviewed or discussed. And you absolutely got to the heart of it. You know, it's a, uh, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful two hours of radio. So, um, sorry, what was you... So they got rid of that. <laughs> well, no, it's still, it's, still, it's still there, but it's just with, with, two, with two presenters rather than, right. rather than the one. Right, right. 
So how are you feeling about this? Oh, I see, yeah. Well, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. If you change anything on the radio, everybody is up in arms. People feel very passionately about their radio. They listen out of habit. They, they feel far more passionately about it than they do about any television channel. Um, well, it's a much more personal experience. It is a much you're, more You're listening on your experience. own a lot of the time, and you really relate to these people. Yeah, and uh, they are... Uh, all the evidence is that the, the quintessential, irreplaceable radio asset is the friend behind the microphone. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And for me, growing up, Johnny Walker was the archetypal friend behind the microphone. Big fan of the series that you two did, which apparently is no more. Is that right? Oh, to know. Apparently. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you heard it here first. Well, you got good news for each other. <laughs> I'm not remotely surprised. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> He's I, just getting his own back, Dave. I, I learned that I did. Uh, a confessions TV show for four years, I learned that it had been discontinued from an ice cream seller on Bodmin Moor. <laughs> and I, I, we'd stopped on the way back from holiday, and he said, sorry to hear your TV show's cancelled. I said, has it? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. So anyway, so you learn these things in, uh, in unusual places. But hey, look, so, yes, it's an arranged marriage, but Joe and I uh, go back a long way. In fact, our eldest kids are the same age. We used to go on holiday together. Um... And when, the, when an arranged marriage was suggested, I suggested, I suggested Joe because, just because uh, her evening programme I heard more than any other show on Radio 2 because it was on when I got home from doing mine. So I thought it was worth giving it a go. Right, right. Well, talking it, of axed programmes, I mean, the, the, the Radio 2 book club, has, is that, has that come to the end of the... <laughs> no, books were books were a big part of what you yeah, big part did, of it. did your. We're looking at a picture of you with Ian Rankin here and uh, Ian McEwen. Yes. And who, I mean, who else? Who, 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 give us some more of the highlights. Of this. I mean, you had some very you had everybody on, on there. everybody. Yeah. So the book club. Me. <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, this is a particularly painful part of the, of the evening. Um, the book club was a very big part of uh, of the show and. I was very upset when they took it away. So as a result of that, I have decided to do my own. And uh, I'm going to start a podcast in the next couple of weeks because... Very good. Because it, ne- you know, it needs to be done. And I've been associated with... I mean, the, re- the reason I'm writing now, I think, is because when I was at Five Live, we did... Uh, I did two authors every Thursday afternoon for eight years. And when I left... I think it was just it had just become part of my way of thinking. So when my ten-year-old son came back from school, only interested in science, I thought, for reasons that I still can't really remember, I thought I'd write him a short story, which then became a long story, and then then I started writing books. But so so the book club was was very much part of what I did, and then the people who who thought of the arranged marriage thought it'd be a good idea to take that away. So, so what kind of you know? But the podcast you're doing yourself, yes. Yeah, so the podcast is going to be called Simon Mayer's Books of the Year, and uh, we're going to hopefully do it fortnightly. Um, and the response has been fantastic. And I was at Hay last weekend, and people were genuinely excited. So the plan is to do one non-fiction, good news for you guys, one fiction book in every podcast, as well as I'm hoping that teachers and parents will send us stuff. If they come across some exceptional writing from their students or from their pupils, 
or their kids, and they really genuinely think it's amazing. I quite like to feature that as well. All right. So that we so there's all kinds of levels there. And Robbie Williams is just he's got a memoir. He's just confirmed for the first show. Uh, so he started from the bottom. <laughs> well, no, most okay. people start in podcast. It'll be a long time before you got Robbie Williams. <laughs> my, 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 my plan is this. Uh, my editor at Transworld, who is also the same as David's editor at Transworld, <laughs> made me realise very early on that in a lot of households there isn't a bookshelf. And if they do have a bookshelf, it'll have on it Da Vinci Code, yes. Gone Girl, Girl on a Train... That's, they're the books that break through. A lot of Andrew Collins' books, they'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> 1971. <laughs> Although, so, but, but getting a book to break through is, is very, very difficult. So yep. my plan is to try and do a books podcast with a kind of nod towards the film podcast, but to try and make a books podcast. It's easy to get librarians and publishers to, uh, to download it. They'll, you know, they're there. But I just want... I want it to be a books podcast for everybody. You know, right. I want it to be a books, go, book, a books podcast for the people. God, the Sierra Nevada ale is strong. I want it to be a books <laughs> podcast for uh, people who have four books in their house, but they just want to have an, an interesting and entertaining uh, listen. And that's why I think Robbie will be a, an interesting guest. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. So, um, talk, we're now getting on to your oh, thank authorial um, career, um, which starts with... Children's books, didn't it? Yeah. So the, the did it, you write those because your children were at that particular age, and then you wrote young adult stuff when they were older? Or was it was that part of it? The I mean, it's all it's it's a bit baffling to me, really, because I I didn't start any of this till I was in my fifties. So uh, when Joe, who's my youngest, when he wasn't interested in football, only wasn't interested in all the things that I was or pop music, he was just interested in science, and I thought, okay, well, I'll. I'm going to write him a short story. Um, There's a number of things all happening at the same time. I left Five Live. Joe was 10. The iPad came out. Stephen Fry was talking about an app about the periodic table. And he said, this is the greatest thing for the iPad. So I got my iPad and I got this thing about the periodic table. And in this thing, uh, you'll remember the periodic table from school. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, 118 elements... This is what the universe is made from. Every other universe is made out of this. It's, you know, powerful, iconic stuff. Uh, and this, this app is, was genuinely, it genuinely blew my mind. And in it, it used a phrase, and the phrase was element hunter. And an element hunter is someone who collects the periodic table. And I thought, that's a really good idea for a, for a, for a book. Someone else must have done it first. You know, usual freelance paranoia. Uh, quick check doesn't appear as though they have so Itch is Itchingham Loft and he's a 14 year old element hunter uh, and those three books are all, are all one story and, and I it was the most it's like the, the opposite of radio it, where radio is a thing which is fast and immediate and disposable that's it, done that, what's ooh, tomorrow ooh. Uh, most of these books took me a year, year and a half to write uh, it's it's there it's there forever. Um, I found it the most visceral experience that I'd ever had. I was there's a there's a section in the in the first book. I was so excited, right? right I, my hand was shaking when I when I was typing this 
section. I thought, this is ridiculous. It's your book. Why are you... But that's the, that's the way it affected me. And I woke up in the middle of the night thinking of plot lines and dialogue. And it, it was like I'd become possessed by this mm. thing. Um, so, then, so, I did the th- so I did the three and visited loads of schools, visited about 30 or 40 schools a year, which I have to say is an absolute blast. I had the greatest time. Because they've got no idea who you are. Um, they don't care either. They just, you know, you appear at half past nine, you just have to be more interesting than the French lesson that they're yeah, going to yeah. have. Yeah. And by and large, I succeeded. Yep. That's why they're looking cheerful, apart from that boy on the right. <laughs> um, you wanted double French. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Bla- yeah, and Blame was a YA book. I mean, it's a YA book because it's got this lead character as a 16-year-old girl. Right, right, right. But I think of them all as the same. And then the, the adult book, I think of it as the same thing. I mean, it's, there was a big argument about whether it should, this should be a YA book as well um, because the t- two of the three main characters are 16 and 17. But because it's set in 1814, I argued that I th- in there weren't teenagers then. You were a boy or you were a man. You were a girl or you were a woman. These, these guys had been killing other people for two years. They didn't, didn't really feel like a YA book. So give, give us a rough so, yeah, outline well, of, of the, the premise plot. of the book. Yeah, because this is, this is Mad Blood Stirring. Mad Blood Stirring is, uh, well, is, based on a, uh, is based on a true story, which I sort of stumbled into whilst I was researching Blame, which was the orange cover thing, which you just, just saw. And Blame finished with the protagonist escaping London and heading southwest, but I needed to finish the book in a prison. And I thought, well, the most famous prison down there is Dartmoor. And I was just started doing some research, and I came across this story, thought that's too good, I'm going to leave that. So I diverted the story somewhere else. So the, I, this was about the time that Poldark was on TV for the first time, which is a few years earlier in a slightly different part of the country, but it's near enough. But it felt like a very different world. So what happened is uh, Britain and America were fighting a war called the War of 1812. Uh, in America, it's sometimes known as the Second War of Independence. Um, a lot of the battles were at sea, and because of that, the uh, Dartmoor prison in 1813 was full of American sailors. And I think it was actually in the Wikipedia entry to start with. At the bottom, it just said, um, of the 7,000 American sailors in Dartmoor, 6,000 were white and 1,000 were black. And I thought, oh, OK, well, that's, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. That doesn't sound like the world of Poldart, particularly. So I just clicked on through, and I did his poll at university. So this was kind of, oh, I'm, I'm back being a history student again. And discovered that in Dartmoor Prison in 1814, uh, they had the, Britain's only ever racially segregated prison. Um, and this is at the request of the white sailors who'd been fighting alongside the black American sailors. And when they get to Britain, the first thing they do is they ask to be segregated, which is genuinely astonishing, I think. And, as a, and the British shamefully agreed. And so the accommodation is in seven prison blocks. Uh, and Prison 4 becomes the black block, the, non, the non-white block and because they're prisoners of war they have quite a lot of uh, self-determination, they get a salary of tuppence eight a week, they can choose their own food, they can choose their own punishments and the sailors' own punishments are far more vicious than the, than the British um, there's a market that arrives every day so they can buy beer and rum and extra clothes and it's still a dive, it's still like the most notorious prison uh, in Europe but prison four becomes this amazing astonishing uh, block has a thousand non-white American by and large sailors Uh, the accommodation is in three floors 
500 on the first floor, on the ground floor, 500 on the first floor, and the top floor is called the cockloft. It's like a common room, basically. And Prison 4 is under the control of one person. So this is all true. This is not my story. This is part of the background of the story. So where all the other prisons were run by prisoner committees, Prison 4 was run by one man who called himself King Dick. He went everywhere with a club in his hand and a bearskin hat on his head. He was basically a gangster. He ran all the gambling uh, in the prison. And on top of that, he was a theatrical impresario. And in 1814, he put on Othello and Romeo and Juliet. And I'd, I was more and more hooked into this story. And I got to the Romeo and Juliet bit and I thought, that's, the, that, that's a story. So, so this is a story of the production of Romeo and Juliet in Dartmoor Prison in, 18, in 1814. Um, so, all of, so it all kind of came in a rush, really. So I've written the book in five acts, the way Romeo and Juliet uh, is written. Uh, and, yeah, so that's so, a So it won't surprise anybody to hear that there's going to be a film. Yeah, so there's, there was a, the film thing was sorted out before I'd actually even started the book. So really? All of that stuff I told you, I, I turned, I wrote, so my agent said, write a, write a synopsis. I, and I've written a synopsis, so you do put it in four pages. So I thought, okay, let's do it in five acts. Structured the story, handed it to him, and the film rights went pretty quickly. And uh, Tessa Ross, who executive produced Slumdog Millionaire and 12 Years a Slave, she bought it. The screenplay, which I just read a couple of months ago, is written by Jack Thorne, who wrote the Harry Potter play, and he's doing his dark materials for BBC television, and he's been signed up for the new Star Wars film. So I was thinking, OK, well, that's pretty good. You know. <laughs> Star Wars, Philip Pullman, and Mad, and Mad Blood Stirring. So, uh, so right, and that was before I'd actually, I'd actually started it. So I wrote with sort of people over my shoulder saying can you bloody well hurry up because we're waiting to start some kind of uh, work on this but it was um, it was it's quite you know it's quite a story you must be thrilled uh, I'm yes I, I it took two years to took two years to do I sweated and agonized over a lot of it mainly because I felt like no, obviously I'm a white Londoner but I never felt more of a white Londoner than writing this because we spent a lot of time in, in prison for so you have to write so I'm writing dialogue for um, uh, African Americans before they were referred to as African Americans but they don't all come from the same place you know some of them uh, had been in America for a long time some of them have been free men for many generations some of them were escaped slaves some have come from the Caribbean some have come from um, West Africa they don't all talk in the same way. But I, don't want, I didn't want to write a book in a thick patois. Um, so it comes out in America in, in the autumn. So whether, whether I get away with that, uh, I don't know. So you, they have white Americans speaking, you have black Americans speaking, you have white English speaking. That was relatively straightforward uh, to do. So um, I'm pleased with, I think, with, with where we ended up. And I will wait for other people to tell me what they think. Right. And a sequel, Ahoy, or not? That's a much more difficult question. Well, the answer is it's a standalone book. Right. It really is a, you know, it is a one-off event. However, <laughs> <laughs> there is always, there's a certain momentum at the end of the book which makes me think I want to go back and, and revisit some of what happens, <laughs> some of what happens next. Right. But um, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure. But King Dick, who's the, the third of... The, so the, the two main characters are 
a 16-year-old white sailor and a 17-year-old black sailor who become the Romeo and Juliet of the story and, and King Dick. And King Dick, again, like the element hunter thing, I was sure that King, everyone would know the story of King Dick. So I, I Googled it, which was not a good thing to do. <laughs> I, I would heartily not recommend doing that on a work computer. Uh, anyway, but he... I think there was just that sense of... Uh, what, what happened in, in prison for was, I think, genuinely astonishing. It's also um, the first time black gospel music was heard in Britain. Uh, and this, I came to this... All, all the sailors who escaped, um, well, who were released at the end of the war, they went home, and a lot of them wrote their memoirs, a lot of them became best-selling memoirs, just like they would today. And they all talked about the amazing choir that was in prison for. And... Uh, I went and spent some uh, time with a guy who runs the London Community Gospel Choir, Basil Mead. And I said, Basil, I think this is the first time Negro spirituals, which is what they're still called officially, mm. were heard in Britain. And he said, I think you're right. So it had been thought that uh, it was in Victorian times and uh, some gospel choirs came over and they sang for Queen Victoria and they sang for Gladstone. But actually, that's going to have to be rewritten, I think, because I think this is the first time... Uh, that this gospel music is heard and which is why there's a section in, in the book where the choir sing uh, like a blessing, a benediction on some people who are suffering from smallpox because I thought we, I need to make something of this moment because it felt important Well it's a terrific achievement and thanks very much indeed for coming and talking about it. Mad blood staring uh, Please thank Simon Mayo Thank you very much Bring back the word. Bring back the word. That's what I said. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 